Our text today, which you can read from the scriptures or in your bulletin, is from Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 17. Acts chapter 14, verses 11 through 17. Listen now this time, I will read it alone. Kind of read it silently as I'm reading to the inspired word of God. Listen now. And when the crowds saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycanan, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. (coughs) Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And uh, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This week and next week, I am preaching uh, unusual messages. You don't often hear sermons on the topics that I'm preaching about, but the topics are important, and they're in the Bible, and therefore you need to hear about them. Uh, One reason Christians don't know about these topics is their pastors don't preach on them. Pastors today rob their congregation of biblical teaching. That's a very serious pastoral sin. I sure don't want to commit that sin. Now, one of those topics that's often not preached about, but's clearly taught in the Bible, is common grace. Common grace. What is common grace? Well, that expression, common grace, isn't in the Bible. Like the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. But the idea is certainly in the Bible. So first, I'm going to define common grace, then I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches about it, and then I'm going to tell you how we need to apply that truth to our lives, briefly, before our baptism. First, common grace is God's goodness and kindness that he sheds, that he pours out on all people and all creation, irrespective of whether they're Christian or not. Everybody got that? That's God's common grace. Now, common grace is different from redemptive grace. Now, you ought to know what redemptive grace is, right? Redemptive grace is God's grace that he pours out on sinners that call on Jesus Christ for salvation. That's God's redemptive grace. Sometimes we call this, does anybody know, special grace. There's common grace and there's special grace. Common grace simply means God is kind to people who are not Christians. 
That's why we call it common grace. It's common to everybody. Now, I must say, before I get into some of the details here, one reason that people don't know much about common grace these days is because they have a very good high view of redemption, but they have a very low view of creation. My friends, that's wrong. Evangelicals, in particular, have this problem. We're gospel people. We should be gospel people. But there's more in the Bible than the gospel. Did you know that? And there's more to God than the gospel. Creation, in fact, precedes the gospel. In fact, were there no creation, there can't be any gospel. The gospel is around because Satan spoiled God's creation. Not permanently, of course. That's what the gospel's for. Creation is the foundation for what God did in the gospel. And we see God's common grace at work first in creation. But if we have a very low view of creation, we don't understand the importance of creation we will likely have a very low view of common grace. Maybe we've never even heard about it, or even the idea. But I must say this. The Bible is very clear about common grace. (coughs) Paul was preaching at Lystra. Here we read in the scriptures. And he said about the pagans. Isn't this remarkable? In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness. Isn't that a beautiful text? Isn't that just beautiful? Even though God kind of stepped back and says, you want to see what it looks like if I don't give my particular grace? You want to see what the world looks like? Let me sort of step back, like in the days of Noah. And yet, even in that, the Bible says, God gave all sorts of witnesses of himself. When people got up in the morning and they looked around, if they would have thought about it, they would have said, there must be an amazing and remarkable and a mighty God in this universe. Why? For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Isn't that remarkable? And then Jesus taught in Matthew 5.45, For God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The sun comes up. Well, it hasn't for the last three or four days here. At least we didn't see much of it. The sun comes up on sunny days in California. And it shines on everybody. Not just believers. Jesus was teaching his disciples in this passage not to hate their enemies. And basically he's saying, you'd better not hate them because God loves them and is kind to them, despite the fact they've turned their back on him. And then we read in Psalm 145, 8 and 9. Listen to this. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Now, did you get that? Did you notice? It says God is merciful and kind to all that he's made. Not just believers. Not just Christians. God grants all people a great bevy of his blessings. He gives us good food. That keeps coming up for some reason. You know, God must be interested in food, because you notice how much he talks about it there? In the West, we eat, most of us, fresh meat and vegetables. Some of us daily. Even even in the third world, where poverty sometimes abounds, most people, most people are not literally starving to death. They may have a subsistence existence, but most people are not literally starving to death. They can day by day get their food, which is what God promises to his people. Day by day, God provides them. And the scripture says he satisfies 
human hearts with food and gladness. In other words, and did you get this? I didn't really think about this till this week when I was meditating on the scripture. God wants humans to be glad. Glad in him, of course. But he wants them to be glad. Think of that. They may be his enemies, and they are according to Romans 5.10. That is, those that haven't trusted in Christ. But he still loves them. And he still gives them really tasty filet mignon. And clean water, oftentimes right out of the tap. And enjoyable drinks, Merlot and bourbon. Just so they can be glad. That's what the scripture says. So they can be glad. And God looks down even on unbelievers. And today, at lunchtime, unbelievers, maybe at a very nice restaurant in San Francisco, midtown Manhattan, somebody's biting into a $65 steak, a wealthy guy, and he says, man, this makes me glad. And God looks down and he says, I'm glad that that has made you glad because I'm a good God. But God manifests his common grace in another way. He restrains man's depravity. Isn't that amazing? Man is totally depraved. That means man is depraved in every part. Our minds are depraved. Our emotions are depraved. Our bodies are depraved. We're totally depraved. Not utterly depraved. That is, we don't act out all of our depravity. But every part of us is depraved. But God doesn't allow man's depravity to fully exhibit himself. Itself. In Romans 1... Excuse me. In Romans 1, we read that God sometimes gives uh, unrepentant, rebellious sinners over to a reprobate mind. Remember that in Romans 1? Well, that means he doesn't do it most of the time. He only does it sometimes. In Genesis 20, God tells us of a pagan king, Abimelech. You remember that story? In Genesis 20, he had seized Abraham's wife, Sarah, for himself. Abraham had pulled a fast one, kind of lied, and said, this is my sister, not my wife. He says, oh, if she's your sister, then I'm going to take her to be my wife. She's a beautiful woman. And God came to a dream that night. He said, don't you dare. This is another man's wife. And God says in a dream to this pagan king, I kept you from sinning against me. Wow. God keeps the wicked from fully, fully venting their depravity. We'd better be thankful for that. Can you imagine what the world would look like if God fully removed his restraining hand? Likely, it would look like what hell looks like. All sin, all the time. We do get examples of this kind of sort of nearly unimpeded depravity in wartime, in some situations. Pillaging and rape and torture and cannibalism and butchery and debauchery. Some of what the Syrians are actually suffering right now. Yet God keeps these times in history as very rare exceptions. Very rare exceptions. God, as it were, keeps his leash on the wicked. The wicked are just straining. They just want to sin and sin. And God just keeps pulling them back. Nope, I'm not going to let you be as bad as you can be. He just keeps pulling them back. He keeps the world from rushing headlong into utter depravity. He holds sin in check. This is part of his common grace. And it's a wonderful thing. But i got to quickly say one or two other things. Common grace doesn't just keep things from being as bad as they are, it positively makes things very, very good. I was reading in Genesis this week. There we read of Cain's descendants, you know, Cain and Abel. Well, except for Enoch, 
most of Cain's descendants were apparently not godly at all. Seth came later. His descendants were godly. Yet the Bible tells us Cain's descendants, are you ready for this? These unbelieving, ungodly people. They created musical instruments. They forged tools of bronze and iron. In other words, early musical instruments and technology were inventions from Cain's unbelieving line. And yet they were good things. Now, God showers on humans of all spiritual conditions, all of them, just some amazing gifts. Music and art and science and technology and entertainment and medicine. I mean, think of them in our modern world. You know, we take so much for granted. We talk about smartphones. Would you like to know what a smartphone is? It's a computer that you carry around in your hand. It's just amazing. Have you thought about all the staggering medical advances? How about antibiotics and what about anesthetic, major anesthetic? Some of you have had serious operations here. Several months ago, as most of you know, my dad had a quintuple, five-way bypass. I mean, if it weren't for anesthetic, you don't do that. This doesn't happen. You just, well, here's what we can do um, 200 years ago. We, if they had the technology, we could like basically cut you open down here and sort of open up your rib cage and go in and pull things out of your heart. You may not feel very good, but we can just think about this. It's amazing, the remarkable technology. Have you ever marveled at the music of uh, Beethoven? Or for that matter, Paul McCartney or people like that? Neither one of them are Christians. Neither was Steve Jobs. Neither was Bill Gates. Yet every day we benefit from their contribution to human civilization. Every day. Some of you that have been keeping up with the news know that Philip Seymour Hoffman just died with uh, a heroin syringe in his arm. And he was quite possibly the greatest character actor of all time. Tragedy. Many of the early modern scientists like uh, Michael Faraday were, were Christian. I don't know if you know about Michael Faraday, pioneer in electromagnetism. Albert Einstein had two pictures on his wall, and one of them was of this fine Christian man, Michael Faraday, without whom Einstein couldn't have done his work. But Einstein wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a Christian. He was a theist, theist, but he wasn't a Christian. Yet all of his theoretical discoveries about space and time have just revolutionized modern science and space travel. And yet they weren't Christians. And by the way, this is equally true of, of less well-known people who benefit society. Many of the people who surround us and benefit us aren't Christians. The people who plant and harvest our corn and repair our refrigerators and our automobiles and extinguish our forest fires and bring to market everything from tennis shoes to power tools, keep our streets safe from gangs and thugs, create and deliver to us life-saving medicine. We need these people, even if they're not believers. We need these people. In fact, God teaches us a very fascinating truth about this in the Old Testament. God told Israel he wouldn't expel the evil nations of Canaan. God sent Israel, of course, into Canaan, and there were all sorts of unbelievers, some of them thoroughly wicked and godless. I mean, the depravity was amazing. And yet, listen to what Exodus 23 says. 
God says, I will not drive them, he means these nations, out from before you in one year. Lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Uh, yeah, right. If they're all gone and there are just a few of you Israelites in there, what's going to happen to all this land? Now, we sometimes hear Christians either, either say or imply that like for God to just all in one fell swoop get rid of all the unbelievers in the world. Now, if you think about that, you'll think that's really stupid. Our world couldn't go on without these gifted people. Common grace assures there's continuity in history. These unbelievers are a great benefit to God's world, including to us Christians. And we couldn't operate this world without them. God uses them to help us, even apart from the preaching of the gospel. We need them. Do you understand? We need unbelievers. We need them. And it's part of God's common grace that he allows them to use their gifts to benefit the world. Now, you can imagine, and I'm coming to a close here, you can imagine how utterly then incomprehensible is the ingratitude of unbelievers. God usually gives unbelievers delightful food and a comfortable shelter, impressive transportation, business opportunities, expendable income, sound health, and what do they do? Most of them. Well, they'll mock God, turn their back on him. They act as though their blessings are a result of their own ingenuity or hard work. They deplore God's law, poke fun at godly Christians. At best, at very best, they live their life without reference to God. And I was thinking this week, there's no greater ingratitude in the universe than ingratitude toward God and his kindness. Could there be any greater ingratitude in the universe than toward God and his kindness to us? Yet even here, despite their ingratitude, God just drenches unbelievers with his common grace. He gives them abundant time to repent. Isn't that amazing? God gives people such time to repent. Sometimes it almost seems infinite. It's not infinite, but it almost seems infinite. He's patient. He's long-suffering. Peter tells us that in the days of Noah, uh, the days when God seemed to remove his hand of restraint, God gave the wicked 120 years to repent. And every single day, Noah was out building an ark and he was preaching. God is so full of grace and kindness and mercy to the wicked. So I'm going to conclude with one supreme lesson for us Christians today. Know this, and I want you to think about it. The Bible and God are even bigger than the gospel. Did you know that? The gospel is central and must always be. But the Bible is bigger, and God is bigger. God's grace is even bigger than the gospel. His grace overwhelms the universe. His grace sustains creation. It saturates creation. His grace rains down on unbelievers. And for this reason, God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of praise. Don Brosimley is preaching and speaking and receded today. He's so fond of saying, if it's not worship, it's idolatry. There's a lot of truth in that. God is worthy of worship, not just for his redemption, but also for his amazing common grace. In the beginning today, you remember we read from Psalm 104? Now I want you to listen to verse 33, which we didn't read. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. We encounter God's grace everywhere in the world.
We Christians, his redemptive grace, and all of us, his common grace. And he is worthy of worship and praise for that grace wherever we see it. Because God is a God of grace who, it seems, does almost nothing but pour out his grace. And in the end, only when people finally turn their back on him does he pour out his wrath. Let us praise God for his amazing grace today. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to ask um, Bob Emmer. Bob, would you pray and thank God for his common grace to us and that our hearts would be filled with